everyone. Welcome to New Point Community Church. Thanks for joining our podcast today. We pray that this series and this message inspires you to grow your faith and builds your relationship with Jesus. Enjoy today's message. Well, good morning, New Point. It is so good to be with you this morning. My name is Dave Vandong. I'm the, the campus pastor at our Dover campus. We are currently in week number two of a series we started last week called Bye Bye Babylon. We're excited to continue that today. If you have your Bibles or if you want to pull it up on your phones, go to Daniel chapter two. That's where we are going to be at. And again, before we get started, I just want to again welcome all of our campuses. And even for those of you joining us online, we're, we're really excited that you joined us. Now, if you missed last weekend's message when we started this series, uh, I would strongly encourage you, go online and check it out. Jonathan did a great job of setting up this entire series and historically uh, gives us the context of where Daniel is at, what is happening biblically, what is happening in the world at that time. It's, it's a, those are critical things to know as we try to understand what who Daniel was and then what he continues to communicate to us Today, I'll try to wrap it up in this short statement. Generally speaking, Israel, God's people, turned their backs on God. Throughout the course of of their time in the promised land, they turned their backs on God. So God finally said, hey, if you wanna do your own thing, I'll let you. God removed his protection from them and the Israel nation was captured by the Babylonians, by this other empire. And they were taken out of their land to a new land that was not their home. They found them themselves in a place they were never supposed to be. That truth actually reminds me of a story I read a couple years ago about a young couple. Uh, their names were, were, uh, were Tammy and, uh, and Brayden. And this couple was young, they were in love, and they had big dreams and hopes. In fact, here, here's what their dream was, is they really, for the rest of their adult lives together, they wanted to sail around the world. They just wanted to be sailors. So one day, they got up the courage. They sold everything they had and uh, they sold everything they had and they bought a sailboat. Once they bought the sailboat with their young love, with enough supplies to survive their new sailboat and their pet pug, because everybody knows pugs are the greatest water dogs out there. They set off on this lifelong journey. And for the first 24 hours, It was everything they imagined it would be. But on day number two, in the Gulf of Mexico, their boat capsized and sunk to the bottom of the ocean. Could you imagine what they must have been thinking? I mean, it's hard to put myself in those shoes, but one thing I know, know they had to be thinking was this. This was not how the story was supposed to go. Have you ever been there in life? I mean, maybe for some of you students, maybe it's not getting into the school you wanted. Maybe a sports team didn't go the way you wanted to. If you're a young adult, maybe you're still waiting for that right person. Uh, For those of us who are married and have been married, we know there's lots of moments in marriage where we can say, I don't think that's how the story was supposed to go or how I had imagined. We have lots of those moments all throughout our life. And in those moments, when those things happen, how can we hold on to our hope? 
It's one of the reasons I love Daniel, his life and his example. Uh, I love the book of Daniel because Daniel, no matter what is happening around him, his world has literally fallen apart. They, his life was not as it was supposed to go. Yet Daniel had just this, this hope that anchored him throughout all of the stories. And you see it happen chapter after chapter throughout the book of Daniel. And um, when we talk about hope, a lot of times I think what hope has come to mean for us is very different from a biblical hope. I mean, when we think about hope, we think of a couple things, like as we're getting ready for the football season, many of you are thinking like, man, I sure hope the Browns can make the playoffs this year. That's not biblical hope, that's wishful, right? All right, that's wishful. I mean, that's a part of hope, but uh, that's hope is not wishful. I'll tell you what hope is also not. Hope is also not just positive thinking. When we say things like, hey, just, just hang in there. Just hang in there, stay hopeful, and things will get better. Hope is not just the ability, like, hey, if you think positively long enough, then things will just turn out okay. Hope is also not that. Biblical hope is this. Here's, here's how I would define it. Hope is confidence that God will fulfill his promises in his timing. The two key ingredients of having a biblical hope that cannot be wavered, that cannot fall apart, even though things in our world are falling apart all around us. There are two things. One is we believe that, that, that God will fulfill his promises. And we also believe that he will do it in his timing. God's promises in his timing helps us have an anchored hope. Now, what I wanna talk about today and where I think Daniel chapter two is gonna take us, of these, of these two components of having a biblical hope, I wanna talk today about God's divine timing. If there's one thing that maybe frustrates our faith more than anything else, those moments where like, God, where are you? Like, God, what are you doing? It's this, is that, our timing and how we think God should work is often very different and later than his timing. And so hopefully what I, what I wanna do today and uh, hopefully what you'll see through this text of Daniel, Daniel chapter two is that God's timing is way better and it's way more perfect than anything we could come up with on our own. So let's get into Daniel chapter two. So in Daniel chapter two, let me, let me tell you a little bit about what's happening here. Last week, you remember Daniel and his three friends, Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego have been captured. They've been taken off to Babylon. They're in training to become court officials for King Nebuchadnezzar. Now, King Nebuchadnezzar, the ruler of Babylon at the time, in, in the beginning of chapter two, we're told he has this dream. And here, here's basically what his dream is. Nebuchadnezzar had this vision in his dream of a statue. The statue was kind of made up of four different parts. It said he had a head of gold, he had a chest of silver, a bronze, a, a waist of bronze, and then legs and feet of iron and clay. But then he saw this giant rock kind of come out of nowhere and smash this statue like it never even existed. 
For whatever reason, as Nebuchadnezzar had this dream, this dream like greatly troubled him. This dream was driving him mad about what it could possibly mean. And there's actually a good reason for it because what we'll learn here in a little bit is that Nebuchadnezzar's dream is actually one of the most important prophecies that we have in scripture. And so, but because this dream was bothering him so much, the Bible says he was literally not able to sleep. This is how troubled he was. So he brought all of his court officials, all of his spiritual gurus before him. And he told them that he had had this dream and he wanted them to tell them, to tell him what it means, to interpret it for him. But here's a stipulation he put on them. To all of his spiritual gurus, he says, hey, in order for me to be able to trust that you can tell me the right interpretation of this dream, um, you actually have to tell me what my dream is first. Of course, our spiritual gurus, they, they threw up their hands like, King, that is impossible. How could we possibly ever know what the dream is that you have? Well, because Nebuchadnezzar was so troubled. In fact, there's kind of some insanity creeps up multiple times in his life and his rule. Because he was so troubled by it, he said, hey, if you can't do this for me, what good are you to me? I'm gonna kill all of you because you're unable to tell me what my dream is. Well, so that creates quite the buzz between all these courts officials. They're all panicking. Uh, Daniel and his friends who are in training at this point start to hear like there's something going on around us that's wrong. And because they were a part of training also meant they were part of the crew that was gonna be assassinated because of this dream King, King Nebuchadnezzar had. Well, when Daniel hears what's going on, what he does is he kind of goes to his supervisor. He says, hey, hey, if you can get me in front of the king, I think I might be able to help. So he does, Daniel goes in front of King Nebuchadnezzar and basically says, hey, if you give me enough time, I might be able to help you with your dream. I mean, the thing that King Nebuchadnezzar wants more than anything is to figure out, okay, what in the world does this dream mean? So he gives Daniel time. Daniel goes back to his friends and says, hey, plead with me that God would have mercy on us and reveal what this dream is and its interpretation. Well, sure enough, that night, God gave Daniel a vision of what Nebuchadnezzar's dream was. So he goes back to Nebuchadnezzar and that's where we're gonna pick up in Daniel chapter two. Um, in Daniel chapter two, starting in verse 36, this is Daniel speaking to the king. He says this, he says, this was the dream and now, we will, and now we will interpret it to the king. Your majesty, you are the king of kings. The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory. In your hands, he has placed all mankind and the beasts of the field and the birds in the skies. Wherever they live, he has made you ruler over them all. You are the head of gold. He says, after you, another kingdom will arise inferior to yours. And next, the third kingdom, one of bronze will rule over the whole earth. Finally, there will be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, for iron breaks and smashes everything. And as iron breaks, things to pieces, so it will crush and break all the others. Just as you saw that the feet and toes were partly of baked clay and partly of iron, so this will be a divided kingdom. Skipping down to verse 44. It says, in the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom. So in the fourth kingdom, the fourth empire, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. So this dream that Nebuchadnezzar has about this statue and this rock that eventually smashes the statue is a messianic prophecy. It's a dream about the coming of Jesus. Here's what I really 
uh, here's what I love about this. Because we don't actually know what the, these four empires were other than Babylon. We know what Babylon was. Daniel said, you are the head of gold. Babylon is that first empire. But other than that, we don't know from the text what those other empires are. Fortunately for us, we have the advantage of world history. So we can take look at world history and say, okay, we, can, we know what those other three kingdoms are were. And here's what, here's what's really cool is this is, bear with me. If you like history, you'll probably uh, enjoy this today. If not, bear with me for just a little bit. But I love it when history and the Bible come together and work together to give us a complete picture of how God works. And as we understand how God has worked in the past, I think it continues to help fuel our hope for how God is working right now. Even when we can't see it, even when we can't feel it. There's something about these four kingdoms that must come before Jesus. These four kingdoms are gonna come. In fact, it's in the fourth, during the fourth kingdom that Jesus is gonna come. But these kingdoms do not only precede the Messiah. I think what we'll see is that these kingdoms must come before Jesus. These kingdoms not only precede Jesus, these kingdoms prepare the exact right time in history for Jesus. Look at this verse in Galatians chapter four, verse four. It says, but when the set time, the set time had fully come, God sent his son. When Jesus entered world history in Bethlehem, it wasn't just like God one day said, huh, I think, I think today's a good day for you to go, son. Go ahead, go, go into the, that wasn't like God had been working for thousands and thousands and thousands of years to pre- prepare the exact right moment in world history for Jesus to come so that his coming would have the greatest impact. And these four kingdoms had a very specific purpose in preparing the exact right moment in history for Jesus to come. Let's take a look at those real quick. Here, we already know the very first kingdom, the head of gold was the Babylonian empire. Babylonians ruled from about 605 BC to 539 BC. Here's here's I think how the Babylonians prepared the way for the Jesus. When the Babylonians conquered a nation like Israel, their greatest fear was that this nation they had just conquered would eventually regain enough strength to rebel against Babylon. They didn't want that to happen. So what Babylon would do is they would enslave these people and take them as prisoners back to their own land. That's what they did with Israel. Well, because they had because they took all of these Jews back to Babylon, these Jews, one, their temple was destroyed. Babylonians destroyed the temple in Jerusalem. They no longer had a place to worship. And all the Jews had, had, had turned their back on God. They'd become faithless to God. They had remained faithful to the religion. There's a difference, right? There's a difference between being faithful to God and faithful to a religion. And so they still wanted to go to the temple. Well, their temple's gone. And even if they could go to the temple, they could no longer get there. So what the Jews did as they were spread throughout the Babylonian empire, which is modern day Europe and Asia, they built synagogues. Synagogues were created. Why is that important? Well, when Jesus would come 600 years later, where would be the first place he would often go to preach and heal? 
He would go to a synagogue. And even more than Jesus, when the apostle Paul started his missionary journeys, even Paul more than Jesus, the first place he would always go when he entered a new town was to the synagogues in order to preach the gospel of Jesus. The Babylonians, the same synagogues that were created during the Babylonian empire. The Babylonians gave the gospel a place to be preached. What about, the, what about the second empire? The second empire we actually know from history was the Medo-Persians. Uh, the chest of silver represented them. They, they reigned from about 539 to 331 BC, so a longer empire. And uh, here's a cool thing about the Persians. The Persians were the first empire to create a postal system. You guys ever uh, heard of the U.S. Pony Express? Their motto, the U.S. Pony Express's motto, actually goes back to the Persians. It was the same motto or very similar motto that the Persians had. The Persians had this strong desire that throughout their empire, they would be able to communicate more effectively with each other. So they created roads and they created a postal system. Why, how would that help the gospel of Jesus Christ, you think? Well, when you look at God's word, when we, when we look at God's word, we, we often think of like books of the Bible, like Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians. Those, those were actually not books to begin with. They were letters. And when a church would receive a letter from one of the apostles, they did not want to just keep it onto themselves. They wanted to share it with other churches throughout the world. How do you think they shared those letters? How do you think the apostles' words got spread to churches all throughout the world? It was a postal system. The Persians created a way for the gospel to be delivered throughout the time of Jesus and the early church. The the third kingdom, the third kingdom, the waste of bronze represented the Greeks. Uh, Many of you know Alexander the Great, even though this passage in, in Daniel chapter two doesn't specifically talk about Alexander the Great. Later on in Daniel, there's a very specific prophecy about Alexander the Great. Didn't know if you knew that Alexander the Great is talked about in the word of God, but here's what the Greeks did. The the Greeks reigned from, uh, again, a little longer time, 331 to 168. And here's here's the thing the Greeks did. They were different from the Babylonians in this sense. When they conquered a nation, um, they, they did not necessarily want to take a tribe or a nation out of their land back to Greece. What they would rather do is they would rather put Greece into their people. They wanted to create a Greek culture. They wanted every culture to become like them. And an important part of that was their language. They required all of the nations in their kingdom that was under their rule to learn to speak Greek. It would be very similar to you and I when we travel around the world. For those of you who've gotten to travel around the world, we are fortunate as English speakers that most of the rest of the world, you can find someone somewhere in almost any nation that can speak English pretty well that we can communicate with. That's what Greece did back in the ancient world is no matter where you went in their empire, you could find someone who could have a common language. Why would that be important for the gospel. Well, no matter where the apostles went throughout the Greek empire, throughout that empire, there would always be someone. Even if you didn't speak Greek yourself, you had a loved one or a friend who could speak Greek. It gave the gospel a common language to be declared. What about the fourth kingdom? 
The, the legs and feet of, of iron and clay represented the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire was the lastest longing empire uh, dating from 168 BC all the way to 476 AD. Now, let, let, me, say, let me say this too. Um, as each of these empires conquered the previous one. So when the Persians conquered the Babylonians, their empire was larger than the Babylonians. When the Greeks conquered Persia, their empire was larger than the Persians. And when the Romans conquered the Greeks, their empire was the largest of all, uh, spanning, again, most of Europe and a great deal of Asia. Their empire was massive. But here's, here's what the Romans provided, is they provided a time of peace. Pax Romana, Roman peace. Here's why that was important. And I think this one's a little bit harder for us to understand in our context. It wasn't so much that there wasn't wars and those kind of things during the Roman rule, but it was more that the Rome provided a, uh, provided safety. At no other time in world history had the world, had an empire been as policed as much as the Romans. There were, there were not a lot of thieves. There were not a lot of, there was not a lot of just common crime. It became very safe. In fact, the safest it had ever been up to that point in history for people to travel throughout the empire. Both the roads were easy to travel and it was also safe for people to travel. The reason that the apostle Paul and others could travel so easily spreading the gospel of Christ is because the Romans provided a safe sanctuary for them to do it. Each one of these empires had an important part to play in preparing the exact right moment for Jesus to come. When Daniel received this vision, when Nebuchadnezzar received this dream, it was 600 BC roughly, it wasn't until 600 years later, and even a little bit longer than that, honestly, that we could start to see the purpose that each one of these nations had in preparing for the time of Jesus. When you think about your life, when the story doesn't go how it's supposed to go, when it doesn't end like it's how it's supposed to end, could you wait 600 years to understand God's timing. Our God is much bigger than we realize. In fact, when I think about when the story doesn't go how it's supposed to go, how do we keep our hope anchored? There's, there's two things I draw the story. And I could probably say a lot more, but let me, let me, just, let me just hit two, uh, two today. Two truths that will help us anchor our hope. One is God's control is bigger and better than you can imagine. His control is bigger and it's better than you can imagine. I mean, just one example of that is, is he's always in control of who's in control. It doesn't matter who we think is in control. God is in control of them. I mean, just take Alexander the Great one of the most well-known figures in the history of our world. He's just a footnote in God's story. God is always in control of those who are good. And here's what I mean by that is, I don't mean that God's up there like a puppet master trying to, uh, trying, like making everything happen, forcing everything to happen. That's not the case at all. It just means this is that, is that God can work through anyone and in any situation to bring about his good purposes. 
In fact, if, if you look at these nations, uh, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks and the Romans, there's a lot of good they did, but they were also still really evil nations. There's a whole lot of ugliness to these rulers and to these nations and the things they did to not only their citizens, but to the citizens of the nations they conquered. It's disgusting some of the things they did. Yet God could even work through some of the most ungodly people and the most ungodly empires to bring about his perfect plan. God works the same way in you and in my life. There are lots of things that will happen in our lives that are not God's plan, that are ungodly, that are difficult. Yet even in those moments, God is weaving a story that we cannot see or we do not understand. His control is way bigger and way better than anything we can imagine. I actually wanna share a a story with you today from a a family, a a part of our our, our Millersburg campus. It's a Krosky family. I want you to listen to their story and be listening for how God was working even when the story was not going how they wanted it to go. Check out their story. It's the most somber place you'll ever be. Um, You go into these waiting rooms and everybody is just quiet because they're all just banking on that prayer that these doctors are going to make them have a baby. So we got married in 2009 and, um, you know, we, we had, up to that point, we had done everything right. We both went to church. We grew up in the church. We, um, you know, we both got our college degrees. About a year into our marriage, we just could not have a baby. And nobody could give us a reason of why. And that was so frustrating. And so I had asked Jimmy if we could go out on a limb and go see a fertility doctor in Columbus. Going through something like that, there's something that there's just about fertility clinics that you can never explain unless you've been there. So we ran through thousands of tests that felt like, um, and we started fertility treatments. We did four rounds of um, what they called like an IUI. On the fourth try, it worked and we were elated. We went in at seven weeks. Because we were on a fertility, we got to go in early. Our doctor came flying in and he's like, hey, what's up? You know, this is a great day, you know? Then he took the picture and he started looking around and he got quiet. So we walked into his office and he said, he, I'll never forget, he put his hand up. He's like, I'm not, I'm not saying that it's not great. He's like, but I'm saying we need to wait and see. Seven days later, I went to that appointment and within minutes she said, I'm so sorry, the baby's dead. And I had to hold the baby for another two weeks. God, why are you doing this to me? Why are you making me endure this? I've done everything you've asked. I've gone to church. I've, you know, prayed. I've been there for you. I'm just asking for a miracle. I just wanted to be a mom. And here I was, babyless laying there and at that time you know they always say marriage isn't 50 50. there's sometimes when your partner is going to be carrying the load and you're not and there's sometimes that you'll be carrying the load and your partner's not and at that point he was carrying 95 99 percent 
and I was just doing everything just to survive because I couldn't imagine my life without this baby. So two months after that, I begged, I begged him to do adoption because I just knew I couldn't do it anymore. I couldn't go through the fertility treatments. I couldn't go through the shots every day. And he begged me to do IVF. At this point in our life and in our marriage, we were broke. I said, we can't, we cannot pay for this month to month anymore. When we went to IVF, there, this was it. There was, there was no money to, to adopt. There was no money for one more shot. You know, sometimes I feel like there's this rainbow over IVF that says, oh, you know, it's such a great thing. It is, it is grueling. He was sitting next to my head and I was just, just silent tears were just going down my face because it hurt so bad, but I wanted this baby so bad. The crazier part about it was at the time when they did the implant, three days later should have been when our baby was born. So not only was I sitting on the couch afraid to do anything, I was having to also sit there and mourn the fact that this should have been our baby's day that he was born. The day that we found out we were pregnant, we were pregnant. I prayed for the first time that I had prayed in years. And I'll never forget it because from the day we found out that we were pregnant, I prayed the same prayer every single night. God, I'm just asking you just watch over him and protect him and we will make sure that he knows you and that he loves you and that he's raised up in the church with you. Things kind of progressed pretty smoothly. You know, we went to our 20-week appointment. We found out it was a boy, and he instantly got named JJ at my 36-week appointment. Within a minute of her putting the ultrasound on my stomach, she looked up at me with tears in her eyes and said, this baby is coming now. She was, you need to get over to the hospital now. When we pulled around to the hospital, I knew something was wrong because the head of the OB unit was standing there with a wheelchair. I just remember crying to God and it was the calmest, weirdest feeling I've ever heard because in my ear I heard, I have him, he's okay. And I, it was almost like I was laying there with my arms out, like I just like had laid the heaviest cross down finally and gave it to God. And. I had to because I was tired. JJ's heart rate was 260. It was sailing out of control. And I looked at him and I said, I, I need you to go. And that was so hard to watch the two people that I love the most go out the door. And I mean, it was just like one thing after another, like God was so present that day. He's just always had this undeniable faith in him. Then when he asked us to get baptized, it was all him. For as broken as my faith was, he gave me this child that has a unshakable, undeniable faith. I think back to Luke 12, 48, a bunch. If you're entrusted in much, you'll be asked that much more. What more of a responsibility could you have um, to raise your kid? After that day, I don't know how you could ever say that God isn't there. But I have learned that his timing is way cooler than mine.
Uh, Jimmy and Lord, thank you for sharing your story with us. It's always easier when you talk about God's timing, when you can look back and you can see how God worked. It's much harder when you're in the moment. Watching their video, it also just reminded me of this. Like so many of the things that happened in our life when the story was not supposed to end up like it did. Infertility and other things like it, that's not part of God's plan. In the garden of Eden, God created us to be fruitful and multiply. Sin complicated and ruined everything. Sometimes we just fail to to realize how destructive sin has been in the world and in our own lives. It wasn't part of God's plan. Yet even things that aren't part of God's plan, God can still work through to bring about his purpose, right? That's Romans 8, 28. God works for the good of those who love him. Verse 29, which is one we often don't go to or forget, is what God is working towards, what the good God is working towards is to form us into the image of Christ. God's ultimate purpose in our lives is to form us to be more like Jesus. That's the ultimate good. And no matter what's happening around us, we can always be moving in that good direction. Here's the other thing, just listen to the Kroskis and their story is not every story ends like theirs. And that's why when we talk about hope and keeping an anchored hope, there's, there's another very important thing we have to keep in mind when it, when it comes to God's timing. It's this, is that we have to keep the eternal the, in perspective that it's always greater than the earthly. One of the things that makes waiting on God's timing so difficult for us is the fact that we want this life. We want earth to be heaven. This earth isn't heaven. Jesus didn't come to our world to make this lifetime perfect. He came to deliver us out of this very imperfect world to a perfect one. And sometimes the end of the story, we're not gonna know it until we get there. There's this scientist in the 1920s. His name was Dr. Goddard. And uh, Dr. Goddard was was well-renowned uh, scientist in his day. And one of his like kind of side projects is he he was an astrophysicist even before astrophysicists were a thing because they weren't really a thing in the 1920s. But he wrote this article in the Smithsonian dreaming about the day man would be able to fly to space. And he said, if, if man is ever gonna be able to fly into space, remember this is 1920s, if man is ever gonna be able to fly into space, the component that is needed is gonna be liquid fuel. Liquid fuel barely existed in the 1920s. So Dr. Goddard, amongst all of his peers was like, he, he was ridiculed for this theory and this dream of getting man into space. In fact, after he wrote the article for the Smithsonian, the New York Times posted an editorial mocking him and this theory that he had. They, 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 made, they just made him look awful. Until 49 years later, on July 17th, 1969. It was the day after Apollo 11 took off from the earth on the mission to the moon, where in a few more days, Neil Armstrong would be the first man to step on the moon. On July 17th, 
The New York Times issued an apology to Dr. Goddard because he was right 49 years earlier. Here, here's, the, here's, the, here's a little bit of the sad thing is that Dr. Goddard actually died in 1945. He won, he never got to see his theory of getting man into space become a reality. But second, for those of you that might be a little bit spiteful, not that any of you would be, he never got to hear the apology from the New York Times. When the story doesn't end like you want it to, can you wait until heaven for your life to make sense? If you can, you will have a hope that is unshakable, a hope that is anchored because we have, we keep the eternal over the earthly. In fact, let's go back to Daniel chapter two. The whole point of that prophecy is not primarily about these four empires would come and how they would prepare the way for the Jesus, although that's really cool. And, it, and, and they were really important. The ultimate point of this whole prophecy in Daniel chapter two is that Jesus came and he defeats evil. He defeats sin. Everything in our life that frustrates us that holds us back. Everything that we think has control over us and the people who we think have control over us, all of that one day will be gone. He delivers us from this world into a future hope, to a place where there will no longer be any more weeping or crying or disease or pain. That's the source of our hope. He is the source of our hope. We truly have a living Hope, because it's not based in things, it's based in a person, it's based in our God. So as I think about this chapter today, if I could reduce it all down to one thought, and I know there's probably lots of takeaways, if I could reduce it all down to one thing, here's, here's the one question I would have for you and how it connects to you and I today. Is this, what in your life what life challenge have you made that's bigger than God? What in your life have you made that is bigger than God? The day you figure this out will be one of the most important days for your faith and keeping your hope alive. The day you realize that God is smarter than you. And the day you remember that God is so much smarter than you. That's the best day. And as we remember that, we will have a hope that is unshakable because we know God will fulfill his promises and he'll do it at the exact right moment. Father God, we are so grateful for your word. We're grateful for the reminder this morning that uh, when life doesn't make sense to us, you are working in ways we, we cannot possibly imagine, we cannot possibly understand, and honestly, ways that we cannot possibly know. And God, in those moments, God, may we turn our attention, may we build the foundation of our lives and who we are 
off of you, off of what Jesus has done for us, of what he is doing in our lives and God, what he will eventually deliver us to. God, we're so grateful for the life that we have in Jesus. May nothing in this world take our eyes off of that, take our eyes off of you. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for joining us today. If you want to know more about us, please visit our website at newpoint.org. There you'll find past messages, parent resources, times and locations to all of our physical campuses, or you could just download our app at newpoint.org app. There you can find all those same resources just in a mobile version. We want to say thank you again for joining us and we'll see you next time.